Hi, I'm Carol Sanford, the host of the Responsible Entrepreneur podcast, where we bring together ideas that help businesses build great businesses and also change the course of history. Today, I'd like to talk to you about a subject that I hear popping up in conversation and names of new businesses, names of new programs all the time, and I find people really falling short of what the idea really means, and that's the term regenerative. I want to go back in time and tell you where that idea came from because my colleagues and I were the first to use it over 50 years ago. It started in Procter & Gamble, where there was an idea of creating something called a value-adding process way of working, where everything from earth to earth was looked at as contributing to and receiving return all along the flow. That process was so successful that it caused Procter & Gamble to be able to make its products for 10% of the cost of the next most able producer. I'm not talking about a 10% reduction in cost. I'm talking about a 90% reduction. Plus, they grew the market, learned to control all of the market shelves for detergent. This was particularly for detergent, although it spread quickly into food. And as a result, they got the attention of Harvard. Harvard came to study them. And of course, the problem with academics who come to study is they are looking through their own filters and not through the particular way of viewing the world that the folks who were building it were. They heard them talking about value-adding process and unfortunately heard it as value-added, which you've heard me talk about before because value-added is an extractive thought. I put something in, I get something out. Whereas value-adding process is a value-regenerating and generative process. They also brought another group who said, oh my gosh, that look from earth to earth, that's too big, too long, let's chop that up. You know, always break something down into its smallest parts. And they created something called supply chain and value chain and published that in a way that it became so popular it is now in our lexicon as the way to run a business. If you went back to what Procter & Gamble did, and you can see more about this in my book, The Responsible Business, you'll see that they lost the heart of what the P&G people were doing that not only created these phenomenal returns, but it also helped change the course of history with how we work with people and with products and with ecological questions. The next thing that they missed was the idea that there are actually four levels at which you could work on this idea of value-adding process. You can do it just operationally. Well, think about it. If you were in a car wreck, these are the four levels of what you would go through. First, they'd operate on you and put you back together. All the pieces, the stitching. Secondly, they would put you into recovery, and then as you're recovering, they would put you into a maintenance, which is the next level up. In ecological terms, it's where you're sustaining something. You don't have to repair it anymore, put it back together to operate. You now can maintain it. Once that happens for you after your auto accident, you can actually start to improve the system. So let's assume you're out of the hospital, you're doing really well, you start to do exercise, you start to eat better, and now what you've done is life has come to you in a way that you know that you really need to make your systems stronger and healthy and work well for you. Eventually, you can get to the idea of what we call regenerative, which is who are you uniquely? What could your life be about? How could you make a difference? So the definition of a value-adding process done regeneratively has the following three ideas. And you're going to hear about this from my interview today of people who are doing regenerative agriculture and regenerative production webs. So the three characteristics that you want to look for under regenerative value-adding processes is, first, 
that they increase the capacity of every entity they touch, every bounded hole, so that it can continue to evolve. So you think about the bees, the honeybees that we're having a challenge right now. You don't just bring them back, but you say, what helps honeybees not only stay healthy, but continue to evolve? The second thing you're looking for is who is it or what is it uniquely as a whole? What is the essence of honeybees? And how is it that you take their DNA and help that really be the source of regenerating? The third one extends that idea of essence where it knows that when something is regenerated, that it also pays attention to its context. So some of you may know and others won't that when a forest gets an insect infestation on one side of it, the other side of the forest starts to change using its own DNA and creates a resistance to, and in fact, unable to be destroyed by the infestation that is on the far away beginning of that forest. By the time those infestation have moved toward the middle and over to the other side, it's obsoleted because the new uh, regeneration is making it fit its current environment while still being itself, the forest. Same thing is true for a starfish. They look at when it loses a pod or an arm, whatever you want to call it, and what they discover is that it can grow a new tentacle, but that tentacle is DNA accurate, but it is very different based on the ocean, the water, and what has even changed in time. So regeneration is a much more powerful, a much deeper idea than many people are taking it on at this point. As I said, you're gonna hear from two of my friends and colleagues who are having an extraordinary impact on changing agriculture and the work with businesses and their relationship to suppliers who are involved in agriculture. So listen up and see if you can hear these three ideas in how they think about regeneration. Welcome, I'm really excited to have the two of you here. Would you please introduce yourselves and briefly um, tell us just who you are and what you're a part of. Hi there, I'm Ethan Roland Soloviev. I'm an entrepreneur and a supply chain specialist. Uh, I have a background in biochemistry, computational biology, permaculture, and regenerative agriculture. And I'm currently the CFO of TerraGenesis International. Hi everybody, I'm Gregory Landaway, and um, I'm the CEO of TerraGenesis International, and I'm a, a permaculture and regenerative design specialist and uh, regenerative producer web um, creator. And uh, I have a background in environmental science and permaculture. TerraGenesis International works with companies to transform how they supply themselves, how they supply their businesses, how they supply everything uh, that uh, they create and put out into the world. Um, we work to transform companies from the earlier understanding of a supply chain into more complex webs of interrelationship where there's opportunities for adding value at many different uh, parts of the system. Overall, TerraGenesis has a goal to work with 100 different companies and organizations in the next 10 years to shift a billion dollars of purchasing power per year into fully regenerative sources. Um, this will lead, if our calculations are correct, to about 100 million acres of land transitioning into regenerative agricultural systems, and that will capture enough carbon to reverse global climate change. I bet there were at least 15 times one or the other of you said regenerative. 
so I think probably uh, we should get it defined. Uh, Ethan, you want to do that? I'll give it a try. There's a number of different aspects to regeneration. One uh, way that I often describe it uh, to start thinking about it is if you picture a continuum with degenerative on the on one end, that is destructive, extractive, uh, decreasing the possibility and potential of an ecosystem or of a person or of a company, and then way far on the other end of that continuum is regenerative, where you're continually adding value to everything involved with that person or that business uh, and increasing the possibility and potential uh, in everything around them. Somewhere in the middle of that continuum, you might find something called sustainability. Uh, And a lot of uh, outfits out there are currently working very hard towards sustainability as a goal. Uh, We think sustainability is fine, but we believe that it's not enough. And so it's important for us to be looking past sustainability into how can we actually uh, improve, heal, and regenerate the living systems of the earth uh, and the living systems of people and communities of the earth uh, for a more thriving future. Want to add anything to that, Gregory? Well, I think there's um, another layer of regeneration, which refers back to part of my share about what we do at Regenesis, um, at, at Terragenesis, which is to um, understand that the act of regenerating has to be held with within the business itself and within the individuals inside the business. Um, and so the application of the word regenerative to agriculture, for instance, also necessitates the, the, the people, the consumers of the agricultural products, the companies that are processing and producing are also um, moving themselves along that continuum so that their um, understanding and the way that they're actually interacting with the products is also evolving alongside the system itself. And I know you have several clients who are pretty dedicated to this. Could you pick one of them and tell us about how you're working with them, what regenerative agriculture looks like with them, um, and maybe some of what's being accomplished in that process. I'll start things out. So Terragenesis is working with a large international cosmetics company called Lush. We connected with Lush Cosmetics and began to engage with them around what it would look like if all of their ingredients, all 500 of their ingredients in their portfolio, all around the world, this is things from blueberries to asparagus to cocoa butter to honey uh, to almonds. What if every single one of those ingredients came not just from an organic farm, but came from a fully regenerative, permaculture-inspired, ecologically beneficial farm? Uh, And they basically came to us and said, "Can, can you work with us to transform our entire global supply chain? That's what they said, their supply chain. Uh, into something that will have huge amounts of value and regenerate the ecosystems and the cultural systems all around the planet. And so we've been working with them now for about two years, and we figure it's about two years out of a five to seven year engagement with the company. Uh, And we've focused in to start on a number of ingredients that we've chosen for strategic reasons in collaboration with the company. 
So um, I'll, I'll hone in on one that we worked with over this last year and are continuing to work with, which is almonds. And almonds are a very interesting crop. 80% of the world almonds is grown in the state of California in the United States. Um, and it's currently, the system of growing almonds is totally unsustainable. Uh, it takes about a gallon of water to produce every single almond that you eat, about 430 gallons. And perhaps you've noticed the state of California is running out of water very quickly. And the way that almonds are grown currently in the state of California is in these intensive um, mechanized monoculture irrigated systems that use huge amounts of water and use large amounts of inputs um, in order to produce the almonds that we're eating. What we did is we went in with uh, people from Lush, this isn't just us. Again, as, as Gregory spoke to before, we're working developmentally. So we're working alongside team members from Lush. And we went and spent a bunch of time on the ground in California, really getting to know the whole ecosystem of supply around almonds. So we went and we met with farmers, we met with processors, we met with, uh, we went to the, the almond conference. And then we began to craft a strategy with Lush to invest into the long-term possibility of regenerative almond production. Uh, it would be a big jump and it's, it's currently, nobody is growing almonds in a way that is ecologically and socially regenerative in California. Even the best almond growers that are doing really great work, they're still using large amounts of water uh, and lots of chemicals and inputs, even if they're organic. So what we have discovered is that there are ways to grow almonds in California that uh, is not as water intensive, is not chemical and input intensive. And we had to go back and understand how almonds grow, sort of what are the essence of almonds as a, as a tree. And we've discovered that there are places in California that were uh, grown dry farmed without the addition of extra irrigation water and grown organically for a long time. And we actually found old almond orchards, 100 years old, that are not pruned, not sprayed, not irrigated. They're up in the hills around the edges of the Central Valley, and they're still producing nuts today, even with no inputs. Now, wow. the process of, of shifting over to regenerative production is not going to be an immediate fast one. There's research to do. We've got to incorporate uh, some other aspects of ecological agriculture, of permaculture into the systems. But we discovered along the way that not only will almonds grow in these places, but a number of other trees like uh, olive trees and figs and persimmons and pomegranates. And then at the same time, Underneath the almonds, which are usually in the in the current system, they're just sprayed, you know, herbicided, clean. You can grow other things like lavender, like thyme, like rosemary, all of which are ingredients that Lush Cosmetics uses in their products. So all of a sudden, from a monoculture system, we could begin to see a polyculture system that was growing multiple ingredients at the same time, while actually catching and storing water in the ground, improving the overall environment around them. So what we had to do from there and what's just beginning now is we're investing not into a single business that's working on this, but we're actually investing into an ecosystem of enterprises that are conscious of each other and functionally interconnected to start to shift almond agriculture into a more regenerative framework. 
I th- would love to hear a little more, and I don't know who should speak to this, about your shift and how you came about moving from the idea of supply chain to a much uh, deeper understanding and how you conceive of it now. You know, th- this is a very live conversation for us. Amongst ourselves, refer to the systems that we're working with as regenerative producer webs. Um, regenerative, as, as Ethan talked about and we've been sort of alluding to, is, is value adding the entire ecosystem. It's um, sourced from the essence, the embodied essence of what is um, the expression of each element of that ecosystem. And it's always moving and growing and evolving. There's a constant development there. Um, The idea of a producer web is that if you look in nature, which we're obviously a part of, everything is functionally interconnected and supporting each other. There isn't a single isolated element. Moving back to um, the term supply chain, it's really easy to see that it's from a mentality that's basically sort of focused on extracting a single resource from a single um, place or company or community and turning it in to, you know, whatever widget or product you might be trying to create for the marketplace. And what that does is it immediately puts the companies that are using, even using the term supply chain or sustainable supply chain, the farthest you can go in your thinking is how to get that single thing from that single entity forever. If we want a system that's going to be providing products and goods and services in into the future, there needs to be sort of a flexible balance that takes place. And, and that's really impossible when you're single focused on the supply chain. Maybe I'll just add a little to that and walk back up the other way. So most companies think of supply chains, which is a mechanistic metaphor. uh, And we find that chains don't actually exist anywhere in nature. And it makes this linear thing where it's a step-by-step and tends to lead us towards a machine-driven extractive process if it's a supply chain. So we first made a shift in our thinking to what we call the regenerative supply web. Uh, And that web started to get the sense that, oh, actually, there's a number of different actors. Things need to be produced but then they're actually processed in one place and they're shipped somewhere else and they're transferred somewhere else and eventually get to the company that uh, transforms it in one way and then puts it out to one part of their network where a consumer you know, experiences it. So we begin to see that there's a number of different relationships and connections there. But calling it a regenerative supply web still sort of puts the focus on everyone supplying this company uh, to do what they do. So the further shift to regenerative producer web brings the shift about where everybody in that whole system, everybody in that network becomes a producer of value to the ecological, cultural, and social systems around them. This is a very complex topic um, you're talking about. And uh, do you have a way you summarize it for people to grasp it, that can see the difference in how it is that you're working? Oftentimes, honestly, how I dig into this with clients in a simple way with cacao clients in particular is with an introduction to the historical context of cacao production in the world and the history of colonialism and extraction, you know, so that people are understanding that cacao as a commodity has been based on basically slavery, understanding and giving people um, a clear glimpse into the 
how unsteady that system is. We can see what happens when we think of things from a supply chain. It, it goes in these ebbs and flows of bounty and collapse, bounty and collapse. And that's how cacao has always worked. When you start to think about um, the shift into a, a network, a web of producers that are all working towards regeneration together, you can see that this is basically um, reverse colonialism. This is where everyone is investing equally in the common regeneration and moving toward, towards that together. And so, you know, that's a way that that's, I like to challenge clients, specifically with cacao, because there's such a long history there of the way that business has been done. I have uh, one more question, which I know people are sitting and asking themselves right now, which is, um, at first, it's very intriguing, but I can't see how my business actually can stay in business if I do all things you do. Is there a financial due diligence or a way to explain why this actually creates the ability to stay in business and do well in business over time? As with everything else we've talked about, there's a little bit of complexity to answering that. But the short answer is yes. Oftentimes, um, it doesn't. You don't need to be a company like Lush who has enough cash flow to invest in the ecosystems that are providing the the ingredients necessarily to engage with your own developmental process to understand as. Um, sort of what it means to be a responsible member of the ecosystem. And that, that in and of itself um, creates resilience, it creates stronger partnerships, and it, it generates meaning. And my belief is that meaning is what everyone's consumers are hungry for. People are tired of smoke and mirrors and greenwashing and all of this other stuff. They want authenticity and connection with the places that the, the ingredients of their food is coming from, they want to know that it's real, um, just speaking about the food industry in particular. And um, you don't have to invest more than your own passion, desire, and learning in order to create a meaningful, real connection with the source of your ingredients. So that's, that increases value to the customers. It, it increases resilience of partnerships, et cetera, which are all very good for the bottom line of a business. Yeah, I'd say I'd say from our experience working with our own companies and with our clients, business is great. Financial bottom line business is doing great. Our our you know companies we're working with and involved with are growing anywhere from, you know, 12 to 30% per year financial capital bottom line gains. Um, so I think that has to do with the storytelling and the meaning that Gregory spoke to. I think it also has to do with just the good sense of developing resilient supply webs um, that can withstand shocks to the marketplace. The other side of it is that we believe that um, businesses to, to actually achieve regeneration, single businesses can't do it alone. It's too much for many businesses to have even a triple bottom line is difficult. So what we propose and are starting to see is that 
different businesses working together in an ecosystem will optimize for the creation of different forms of capital. So some businesses will do great in terms of financial capital and will contribute that financial capital to other players in the ecosystem that might be increasing living capital, that be working on ecosystems and conservation and, and regeneration, whereas others might be developing the social and cultural capital of a place, of an area. By working together and knowing which forms of capital each enterprise is optimizing for, we get a better chance at regenerating the whole system instead of a single business having to do it all on its own. Great. Well, this has been uh, so much fun. I mean, I've known you guys for quite a while and known sort of what you did, but to hear it in your words in quite a bit more detail is very exciting for me too. So thank you so much. And uh, I look forward to checking in with you soon. Thank you, Carol. Thanks, Carol. Well, thank you so much, Ethan and Gregory. As you can hear, the nature of working regeneratively is very complex. I ask them, give it to me in one sentence, and they can't. And I understand that because I work with this idea all the time. I hope you appreciated the stories they were able to tell you to see the dynamics and the complexity of the idea of regeneration and what it means to give up the idea of supply chain, as Ethan points out, is a machine metaphor, and bring us back to the idea of what it means to have something increase its capacity to evolve rather than just get back to its current state and maintain it. Let me know what you thought of this podcast, and if you'd like to see more, please go to carolsanford.com. You can see the uh, blog and podcast section where you can get more of these kind of uh, interviews, and we'll see you here next time. (laughs) 